The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Uh, we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, you can pick up, and uh, if you have a Bible, all the verses are on the screen. We are in chapter 37 this morning. Um, here's what I'm going to do for us. I felt like it would be better just to read the passage straight up front, and then we're going to kind of pick out verses along the way and um, string these together rather than trying to read it in chunks throughout. Um, I feel like this is not only one of those famous stories from the book of Genesis, but it's also one of those ones where you're like, really grateful this is not your family. Um, at least I hope it's not, or something similar to it. Um, but it certainly is a, uh, a bit of a dumpster fire. So, let me read, start it. We're just going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 37, and then we will pray and start looking at this together. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Belhah and Zeppah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? I'm not sure if I understand why that says it, says it twice, but... So they hated him even more in his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow, and to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept, kept the saying in mind. Now the brothers went uh, to pasture their flocks, uh, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, he said to him Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring, your, bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So they saw him from afar, and before, they, before he could meet, came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. He said to, they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. 
So they will, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will come of his dreams. But then Reuben heard, I'm sorry, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit with, here in the wilderness, but do, no, do not lay a hand on him, that he might, re- and Reuben said this, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, this, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a, car, a, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming to Gilead, coming from Gilead, sorry, with all these mistakes, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is, is it if we kill our brother and conceal his bread? Come, let us sell him to, Ishmael, to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midian, Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When we returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood robe in the blood, and then, I'm sorry, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his his loins and mourned for his son's son many days, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. This his father, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Yikes. Let's pray. God, as we... Uh, try to understand this passage and what you have for us in it, I pray that we would experience um, the photo negative or the real from this photo negative in this story. That we would experience the care and concern and love of an older brother who cares for us and loves us and protects us. And it's in this name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I say yikes because, I mean, I've read this story a few times over the last week, and even as I read it this morning, I'm just kind of like, man, like, <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, I don't know what your family history is. I mean, I know a lot of your kind of family backgrounds, or you know mine. And, I mean, just the idea of being so, of being, of offending your family so much that they think, you know what, let's just kill them. And then they're like, you know what, actually, why don't we throw them in a pit and sell them off? Because what good is he in a pit? not making money for us, so we'll sell him off and at least make some money off of pretending that he's dead. I mean, I know that we all have, some of us have jacked up families, but that seems like cream of the crop, like, I don't know, 10 most wanted people in history type thing. <laughs> like, it just seems crazy to me. So, 
With that in mind, I've been trying to think through how do we understand this passage as it is um, for our lives together in Jesus. So what I, what I thought we would do is just kind of basically look at this as I prayed and see this as a photo negative of, actually, I say that and I'm like, I realize that that term dates me because like anybody here under the age of 30 know what a photo negative is? <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what a photo negative is? Okay, some people do. So you know, like in the old days, when you would use a magic box to take a picture, it put it on film, <laughs> and then you would go into this room without any lights on except for one red light, and you would then put the photo negative through chemicals, and then it would show you the real picture of what you took. Okay, just, <laughs> I did this thing. I realized I had a photo class, a photography class in high school, and I realized that that might have been like the very last vestiges of the ancient world where we bought film and we, do, anyhow, sorry. I'm famous for my rants. Um, <laughs> we're going to move into looking at this as a photo negative of the reality of what Jesus offers us and his family. Um, what I want to do is basically kind of pull out four kind of dynamics in this passage as we look through this under this kind of heading of our main point for this passage, following our brother Jesus to become a family of loving grace for all people. I'm not sure that that's like the best statement, but it's certainly the one that I came up with for this week in terms of trying to understand what does this passage do for us in our life together in Jesus? I think what it does is it offers us four photo negatives um, of this big picture of becoming a gracious people, a loving, gracious people for all kinds of people and seeing how hate and jealousy and envy and all these sort of non-loving emotions affect this family. Because we're basically looking at this chapter of like, this is like a defining moment for this family, which seems to kind of be re repeated over and over again in Genesis. But here's another one. So what I want to do is just kind of pick up at the beginning of the passage and under this banner of following our brother Jesus to become a family of loving, gracious people for all, gracious, loving grace for all people, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4, that the reality is love celebrates all people and doesn't play favorites. Kind of putting like the negative version of the passage in the brackets and the main point of what we're going at um, above that. I mean, it's very obvious at the beginning of this passage that uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. Like we all kind of talk about sometimes like the baby of the family kind of being everybody in the family's, you know, favorite or whatever. But that, that's kind of like jokingly said, but this is like in reality said, that Joseph, above all his brothers, was Jacob's favorite child, right? He was his favorite in his old age and his, um, and certainly his favorite from his favorite daughter. I'm sorry, favorite wife. And this sort of thing where like favoritism would have been wrought through in Jacob's experience of life up to this point, and he should have known better, but he still played the same old game, right? Ishmael... Um, I'm sorry, Esau was Isaac's favorite son, and that played out in bad ways. Uh, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, and that played out in bad ways for their family life dynamics. And you would think a little bit of self-reflection would have kind of like, hey, maybe favoritism is bad. But no. Jacob, here again, and you're talking about like the, the age range of these kids is probably like what? 20 to 30 years, so it's a pretty broad age bracket for these kids. 
And yet here he is, Joseph at 17 years old, and Jacob has calcified around playing favorites with his son. I think one of the dynamics, at least as I kind of think about this passage and then in my own life experience, one of the dynamics of the pain involved with favoritism is the sort of, uh, when somebody is favored over others, there is a, a vague sense that I do not measure up to whatever this person has. Whatever, I'm not the firstborn, so there's nothing I can control about that, or the way I express my gifts, or the way I understand life and express myself does not measure up to whatever this mold is. And for Jacob, it would have been, um, sorry guys, but I can still have kids when I'm really old. Like that's kind of basically what he's communicating to everybody else around him. Joseph is my favorite, for my favorite wife of, I mean, four wives, favorite wife, favorite son from his favorite wife, there's nothing that you guys can do to change that. I, this is my favorite son, and he is the one that I like more than the others. And, I mean, the, the code of many colors, like, I don't really know particularly, like, how to understand that, if there's, like, any, like, ancient world dynamics to that. Honestly, if any of you came in in a clown costume, it would be kind of somewhere of, like, you are a special person, you know? I'm not sure what else it's supposed to uh, communicate. But what it does strike me as, you see the opposite in the life of Jesus. We're going to pick up preaching through the book of Luke here in December. And one of the striking things that we'll look at as we see, as we walk through the book of Luke, is Jesus very intentionally goes out of his way to bring into the family of God those who are outcast, lesser than, those people who are discarded by, cult, by the society of the times, and for very, you know, a range of, of reasons, some of them, like, under, not good, but like, okay, like, I can understand how you'd get there. But people who are, you know, had diseases, unclean, people who are handicapped, women were not prioritized in the family of God. You think of the Gentiles versus the Jews dynamic. Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to bring in those who are considered other than and brings them into center points into each of his interactions to display what God is like. This is what God is like. He goes out after the people who are discarded, um, people who are like, I don't know if you guys were, I, was, I don't know if you know this about me. I was in the underground punk scene when I was in high school, and it's like all the like, you know, misfits and people who think they've got the real issues as opposed to people who don't and all that stuff. Um, that was my crowd, and we were kind of like the outcast, right? And so those are the types of people that Jesus goes towards, and even those who are uh, the upper echelons of society. The point being that in the life of Jesus, we see him not playing favorites. Um, I, I think a humorous illustration of this is in the, in the office where you see uh, how Michael treats Ryan, right? Ryan is just like his favored favored son, so to speak, and it's just completely ridiculous in the life of in the, in the, life of the uh, office where Michael is just an idiot and how he is favorite with Ryan. In our life of, of the church, to kind of keep moving forward here, I think this is something we have to protect against and guard against how we play favorites in the life of the church, right? Like, I recognize that in my own role, like, you know, I'm the church planter here, you know, I'm kind of like the upfront lead person. And so it's easy to assume that 
there's a sense in which the closer that somebody is to me, the more kind of important they become within the life of a church. At least that's the way it kind of gets played out um, in many, many churches. And I think myself and our eldership work hard to guard against that so that it's very much people are valued for being different and who they are and their gifts and how they serve. And it doesn't particularly matter how close proximity-wise somebody is to me. Um, I think that we see this in the life of the church and the way people who gets attention, who gets leeway for being, you know, well, that's just who they are type stuff, who gets put in leadership roles, favoritism and how we kind of play out, how we, favoritism, even in the way we talk about other churches, like, well, we're like the real church and those other guys kind of like have kind of got to get together. Like that type of favoritism where it's like, well, we like our church and our circles and those other churches like, well, maybe they'll find Jesus someday type thing. Um, and even in the sense of like the types of leaders and books that we recommend, what sort of favoritism is, rep is expressed in that dynamic. I think what we see in the life of, J of Jacob here is something that we can all easily fall into. Jacob certainly does it to an extreme where he has four wives, 12 sons, daughters uh, excluded from that number. And the way he, um, his favoritism wrecks this family is certainly an extreme example, but it's a, it's a foil, it's a photo negative for us to consider how does favoritism kind of eke its way into how we think about other people and how we think about those in our church and those in our family and those in our community. It is certainly very easy to kind of weave its way into our hearts because we want people to be like us. We just preached through First Peter, but can we put this verse up on the screen? One of the, I think, the dynamics that we see in First Peter is he keeps going after this. Um, in their context, as you would remember when we preached through First Peter, it would have been uh, Jews and Gentiles and that sort of dynamic. But remember, he says in chapter 1, verse 17, that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. When it comes to God's orientation towards the world, he has a people that he has played out a story with to display what he is like but he does not have favorites. Like there's nothing that you can do to be like, well, I've got a gold star with God over other people sort of thing. God is gracious towards all people. And in the context of First Peter, the ability of your prayers to be heard by God is actually hindered or blessed whether you play favorites or not. Like if you are somebody that is playing favorites, First Peter kind of plays it out of like, yeah, your prayers are probably not gonna get heard as well so to speak. It, I, I'm not exactly sure how that works in the divine economy, but in God's sense, the more we have an orientation towards others, people who are different than us. And I think at the end of the day, one of the things about favoritism is that Joseph did something for Jacob. He, he proved that Jacob can have kids in his old age. He, he kind of like beefed his resume up. And I think one of the evaluative questions for us to consider is, do we orient towards other people as people that can do something for us or is our orientation towards other people because we want to know them and care about them and celebrate who they are, period, right? Going back to the book of Luke, like Jesus doesn't gain anything from anybody and he goes out of his way to show that those with handicaps, children, women, people at the time who would have not done anything for him socially were the people that he wanted in his family. Like, when we think about, am I playing favorites? Do I treat people who can do something for me differently than the people that, that don't do anything for me? They, they really can't help me 
in one way or the other. How do we treat children, right? Do we treat children? I mean, I, I understand everybody has varying levels of being able to how to interact with people of different ages and all that stuff, but those with handicaps, do we kind of push them aside or kind of ignore them? Do we engage them, care about them? You know, I think about for us in the life of our church, you know, we, we are talking about um, Heather coming on as deacon of survivor care or something like that, which represents an, an investment of our time and resources as a church for those who have their survivors of abuse. It's interesting, I don't know if you guys remember, anybody remember Rachel Denhoner's visit with us? One of the things that she was commenting on and commending our church for was the fact that she knows mega churches that have huge astronomical budgets that when they've had people who are in domestic violence situations, they've had no game plan and no resources to allocate to help them. And she's like, you guys have more to provide for folks who are survivors than these megachurches with 10 times the budget. That's not to pat ourselves on the back, but to comment that I think on this mark, I think we do well. I'm not saying that we don't have room to grow or that and by any sense do I do things perfectly, but I think a love that celebrates people reflects the heart of our older brother, Jesus, and how he cares for and orients towards other people. All right. You guys cool? We're going to pick up, going to go tracking? Okay. I want to drop down here, verse 5. So we've talked about jo uh, Jacob's favoritism. Um, now we get to talk about Joseph a little bit. Love uses gifts for others and does not boast in self. Again, I'm not sure this is the, like, the smoothest points, but you get the idea. Love uses our gifts for the good of other people and does not boast in ourselves. So verse 5 through 11, Joseph had a dream, and when he, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Like, I just want to comment, it's interesting to me, it comments earlier that he's 17, which kind of helps us kind of place Joseph as a 17-year-old. Like, we've all either, I mean, half the room is guys, so... All, all of you at one point have been or will be a 17-year-old guy, and the other half of the room, the ladies, have all dealt with 17-year-old guys. And as my own experience would prove, uh, I think of what I was doing when I was 17, a lot of you are doing a lot better than I was. So <laughs> not exactly known for my um, winsome decisions, wise decisions when I was 17. <laughs> which was when I was going to the punk shows, just to kind of connect the, <laughs> the line there. And Joseph had a dream when he told his brothers they hated him even more. And he said, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field. And behold, your sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. So basically, he's going to his brothers that he has an antagonistic relationship with and telling them, I've had this dream where you guys are going to bow down to me. And then he does it again with the moon and the stars. And it's another, here's this dream that I've had where everybody in the family bows down to me. So there's kind of two parts of this, right? The first part is that I think, given the rest of the way Genesis goes, he legitimately had visions that God gave him about the future that was to come. And they were true. They, they were certainly helpful in a sense future direction, here's where it's going. The unhelpful part of this was his attitude, orientation, and how he, you can kind of get a sense from the passage, it kind of depends on how you inflect things, but he was a bit of a jerk about the whole thing, right? Like, we've all had, I think, 
you know, the one-upman story sort of thing. Yeah, there's a whole, like, skit from um, uh, Brian Regan, you know, where he's like, you know, I w really wish that I was a guy that went to the moon. Can imagine, like, the stories, like, one-upping guys, guys who've been to the moon, like, what is it, 11 people in history are at the party, and like, well, I, you know, punched a shark to death. And it's like, well, I went to the moon. You know, I guess sort of thing. It's like one-upping stories. That's kind of what he tries to do here. He legitimately has a gift from God, and yet he uses it for his own kind of gain and posturing with other people. So what I just want to say here, I guess one question, what would have happened or what would have looked like for Joseph to have received those visions and then utilized them with grace to serve the family around him? I think that's an open question to consider. What would it have looked like had he done that, to bless his family, to care for them, to love them? He could have. He chose not to. I just want to jump over here to verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and then we'll kind of move on in the story. But here we have Paul just basically commenting in this 1 Corinthians story, or 1 Corinthians letter, what you have that you not receive, if then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, Joseph received this vision, these visions from God, and could have used them to serve other people. Similarly, we get gifts all the time. So many of us, everybody in this room has some type of gift from God to serve other people to bless others, and we have them to be able to use them for serving the good of others around us. Often, we get kind of fixated on how we are not being recognized, or we can get there. I certainly feel that at times. What would it look like for us to open-handedly serve others with gifts, and how would that build the family of God up? What does it look like Maybe this is a small group conversation. What does it look like for us when we don't use our gifts for others, but we try to possess and own and try to manage our gifts so that other people recognize us? What does that dynamic look like for you in your own discipleship? See, we lose ourselves and we claim our gifts as our own, actually. And I think we find freedom in loving other people when we love with the gifts that we have to bless others, and we don't have to manage the results of where those go. We don't have to manage how people receive, receive them. We don't have to manage how people view us. There's a liberation in being able to love others with gifts that we have, letting go of it. All right, we're going to pick up here. Uh, we have to, to land a plane eventually, so we're going to halfway through, or a little bit more. Love covers a multitude of sins and is not vengeful. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus and become like him in our family life together? Love covers a multitude of sins and is not vengeful. I want to, again, these things are not going to be surprising from the passage. But verse 18, we see the photo negative in the brothers. Verse 18, he said, oh, sorry, I went to chapter 28. Sorry. Verse 18 they saw him from afar. So this is his brothers seeing Joseph from afar. And before he could come near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, it's like, that's zero to 60 real fast. I mean, they had some pent-up anger for sure, right? I don't want to say that they were uh, unjustified and feeling frustrated with their brother, right? I, there's a certain sense in which, I mean, can you guys can put yourself in their, their position? you got this brother who's being played the favorites by your dad, and in the midst of all of that, not only does your dad give him a coat of many colors, but then 
in the midst of him having this coat of many colors, he then starts having visions about how you guys are all going to bow down to him. Not one, but two. I'm sure there is some understandable hurt. There's some understandable pain. There's some understandable frustration with Joseph. Somehow they go from that, which I think is understandable, to death. <laughs> we got to kill him. Like that, that's zero to, that, no matter how you slice it, that's still zero to 60. These guys were not in a healthy place, to say the least. Then they, then they said to one another, here, um, in this pit, um, here, I'm sorry, here comes this dreamer, right? Here he is known for his, the way he's offended other people. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will come of his dreams. I mean, this is a level of conspiracy. This is a level of kind of forethought that shows this is not just kind of like an angry fight where they just kind of got carried away. This is a forethought plan where they're like, we're going to kill him. We're going to deceive our, our father. This is how we're going to do it. Like, this is some serious level of, of, of sin towards their brother. I think, hopefully, none of us are pondering how to murder other people in the church. Anybody just want to kind of fess up right now? <laughs> I mean, we've all had it out for Dave, haven't we? Um, <laughs> I mean, I have not, but I just... <laughs> but... I think that we can each consider or we relate to this dynamic of people in, let's say, our family in Jesus who have done us harm and it causes an internal wound that we then have to deal with. Do we forgive them? How do we orient towards other people who have hurt us? That's kind of the space, I think, for us to consider in the life of Jesus or in our life together in Jesus. And in fact, in, the, um, in Matthew 18, one of the things that, that Peter does um, is he asks Jesus, Okay, if, if I understand you correctly, Jesus, and the way you're describing this family and you, this new community, how many times, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I, and I forgive him, right? And the kind of the subtext being that I have to forgive him. Like, okay, how often do I have to forgive him? As many as seven times. And so in Peter's mind, he's kind of thinking seven's a perfect number. You know, after you've forgiven somebody seven times, for forgiving it, like you've kind of shown, I've, I've got it down, I understand it, but there's a limit to how much, you know, it's, you can only sin against me one day a week for a whole week, and then we're kind of done with it. Jesus kind of calls his bluff, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, right, seven times 10. He's like, not only is it the perfect number, but it's the perfect number with the complete number, completely. Now, is Jesus saying like for a year and a half, you have to forgive somebody? No, what Jesus is emphasizing is that the heart posture towards the people around you that have hurt you must be one of forgiving, on a, uh, forgiving in a way that is a regular heart posture towards those around you, right? Forgiveness is not a few times. The posture of our hearts is, should be like Jesus, where we begin to learn God has forgiven me on a regular basis for my whole life day in and day out. It's not necessarily that I like wake up in the morning and think high hand, what the Bible call high-handed sin. I'm going to intentionally make a plan of how can I sin against God. But I sin unintentionally all the time. It's a part of my, my, the flaw in my own moral makeup. And God has oriented towards me with grace and mercy and forgiveness on such a regular basis 
that it shows me that his heart is open to forgive me at all times. So how much more then, when I orient towards his family, if he thinks about them in the same way, should my heart not also be oriented to be forgiving, gracious, merciful? I think this is what Peter is driving at when he says in 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Right, I think this is one of those statements that is, easy, it is a very small statement. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love, love each other earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. And we each see that, and we see that maybe on the page of our Bible, and we think, okay, whatever, next. Like, it's so, it's such a hard statement. It's such a small statement of, like, let it go. You know, or, like, don't worry about it so much that it can kind of feel trivial. When there's actually a deeper meaning behind the passage, a deeper invitation within the passage that invites us into something that I think can only be empowered by the gospel itself. Right? If you think about the ways that you... I'm not sure that it's a good exercise at the moment to consider all the ways you've been sinned against. That's not necessarily the comment now. But if we were to say something like, people have sinned against me, and that very personal and real ways. Let's, say they, let's just say sin. They've sinned against me in some personal or real way. It will take time, if you were to kind of put the numbers together, what Jesus says, 77 times, right? It will take time to forgive them you would say it's a real sin, like for real. They have slandered you. They have said mean things. They've harmed your family one way or the other. Real things. This is the part of Christianity that I think has grit and meaning, apart from just being nice to other people. Because the invitation is to say, I want to have an orientation that is forgiving towards other people. Even though it takes time, even though it takes effort, even though it takes constant rehearsing of forgiveness over the pain of being sinned against. And the only way to explain that is to say, Jesus himself walked a path where not only his entire biological family, but then his discipleship community, his little church of 12 or more people, ultimately at the end of the day, abandoned and betrayed him. And he knows what it is like to then have to think through, I want to be forgiving towards these people, and in fact does so in the moment of crisis and pain in his cross, where he, in fact, is the only person who purchases forgiveness for other people. Right? The only way for us to have a truly forgiving heart towards those around us is to walk, toward, walk a cross-oriented line of, of of discipleship, where we will have to either embrace the pain of not getting the justice that we think we deserve, or hand the pain over to God to entrust Him to handle the injustices that have happened, and to live in the freedom of covering over sin. That does not mean that people get away with it, like, especially like we're thinking like traumatic, high-handed sin type stuff. They will still have to give an account to God. But if you were to consider the people in this story, what if they just oriented towards Joseph as like, man, that kid's a punk. He said some hurtful things. I had to kind of let it go. I had to entrust that this God who's been faithful to us will take care of it. 
how would the story have been incredibly different? I don't think that is a license then to kind of say like, the pain of sin is not real. But I think it is a framework to say, we want to follow this God, we want to follow this Jesus in a way where forgiveness actually costs something. And it will either, it will have to, at the end of the day, be a death for us of saying, I no longer live under the power of having to get my justice on this issue. Or it will be a death for them of having to give an account for those sins before God without Jesus by their side. I'm sure there's more to be said to kind of qualify that. But is that tracking? Are we kind of, is that making sense? I think this is in the range of actual discipleship and not just kind of like being nice to other people. One caution within this is I think within this passage we see an illustration of what the book of Hebrews calls the root of bitterness. So Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone. See a similar theme to what we've just been talking about. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no, quote, root of bitterness, which is a quote from the book of Numbers, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This root of bitterness is a regular phrase. It's a phrase that gets used in Numbers and it gets used in Hebrews. It is something within the range of a sin that has occurred towards us that causes us to ruminate on justice, revenge, getting back at other people in an internal way that grows and grows and grows into the fruit of bitterness, which I think is what we see in this story. These brothers have had their have had Joseph say some outlandish things to them in outlandish ways, and they've had to endure some outlandish favoritism and sin in their family. And here, ultimately, when they're like zero to 60, there's that dreamer, let's murder him. That's the fruit of bitterness coming out, I think, at the end of the day. Here, Joseph could have been loving, or could have been loved, and they could have had pity on him for being caught up in bitterness, uh, favoritism. You know, they could have been gracious towards him had they meditated on the grace of God towards them. And yet here there is a root of bitterness that comes out in their orientation towards somebody who has sinned against them. Now, I think here at the end of the day, like we're talking about sins, like conscious sins in this story. When Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins, how much more is this true for weaknesses that are unintentionally hurtful towards us? Immaturities, sins, weaknesses, unintentional decisions. I mean, I can't tell you, sometimes I'm, I'm hearing stories of, you know, offhanded comments from 10 years ago that people ruminated and stewed on for 10 years that caused resentment towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not saying that they aren't hurtful comments from 10 years ago, but after a certain amount of time, you have to decide, am I going to, like, be gracious and forgive people for their weaknesses towards me and how that's hurt me? Or am I going to take on these, am I going to kind of set up a little shrine for this in my heart and kind of revisit the story of how they hurt me over and over again? This is potentially the more difficult part of this passage, right? That to revisit what Jesus said, it's not seven times, but 77 times. A forgiving heart towards those around us 
And I would certainly say we are not trying to promote a church where we intentionally sin against each other. But it will happen in one way or the other. Weaknesses, unintentional sins, all that type of stuff. How, what does it look like for us to set up a regular internal story of forgiveness towards other people? What does it look like for us to have a posture that follows our brother Jesus in being forgiving and gracious towards those around us? Okay, if you have any questions or you disagree, totally fine. You can text it right there and I will stumble through the best answer I can on the other side of this. Last comment and then we will close up. This is going a little bit longer than I intended. Are you guys okay? Okay. You can just set, you can shut it down right now if you want. Just be like, okay, hey. Last point, nobody cares. Um, all right. So as we follow our brother Jesus, the final kind of comment on this passage is, love rejoices in God's truth for others and is not deceitful. I just think this is incredible. Basically, the end of the story is, they decide, you know what, rather than murdering Joseph just outright, let's throw him in this pit, and then we got these people who are heading to market right here in front of us. So rather than just leaving him in this pit to die where he's not making us any money, let's sell him off to these guys, make some money off of a slave, which is always a really good idea, selling people into slavery. Awesome idea. It's always worked out for everybody who's done it. Here, let's sell our brother into slavery rather than murder him. But let's let's kill this goat, put some some blood on his uh, this favorite boy's you know starter jacket, whatever they you know you wear today. When I was a kid in middle school, starter jackets were the thing. <laughs> Do you remember? Is this that's a deep cut, man? <laughs> starter jacket. Everybody was like, "Whoa, you got a starter his starter jacket? Throw some blood on it." Take it to our dad, identify this, please, wink, wink, we don't know who this is, and then stand by while our dad mourns over this dead, dead brother of ours and has a whole funeral for him and a mourning service and everything, and they just keep their lips shut because they've probably, you know, divided their, their earnings among themselves. It's outlandish, and it's incredibly deceitful and, like, maliciously deceitful, right? <laughs> like, here they're standing by while their dad is, like, weeping over their dead brother, their dead, dead brother. And they all know that they've all got money in their pockets from him having been sold off to Pharaoh. It's just crazy. I think the thing that I want to comment on this is just simply to say, this is not, to say the least, the orientation of love towards other people, eh? This is, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, they're, these brothers have locked themselves because of this root of bitterness into a posture of meditating and holding on to these negative, these negative weaknesses and sins from Joseph and how they've affected them and ruminated on them in a such a way where they really just meditate and think about all the time on the negative effects of Joseph's sins towards them. The invitation for us on the other side of this is 1 Corinthians 13. Not surprising, I don't think. I'm sorry. Next, there we go. Love is patient and kind. Again, think about this in relation to the story in front of us. Were these brothers patient and kind? Just kind of think about that type of thing. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Certainly seems like these brothers were. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, 
but rejoices in the, with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Clearly, these brothers are not doing that. It is hard to be more aware of the grace of God in others in our circumstances. It is hard to be more aware of God's grace in other people, even when they are weak and sin towards us, and we are weak and sin towards other people. It is hard to be more aware of God's grace in our lives when it seems like the negative stories, the negative experiences, just take on a life of their own and are more interesting to ruminate on. But here, I, I personally find this hard, but I think this is an invitation for us. A root of bitterness and the wrongs against me are more comfortable and the freedom of forgiving, forgiving and celebrating grace in other people takes the center of attention away from me and towards God's goodness towards me and other people. This, it seems to me, sounds a lot more like Jesus than my own kingdom building. It is, it does require the supernatural power of the Spirit to say, I'm going to celebrate God's grace in other people's lives, God's grace and power towards other people rather than holding on to their sins against me. Okay, I want to make one final comment about this and we're going to close up. You guys cool? Through this whole story, if you remember how it goes, you have Joseph being favored son, miraculous dreams, brothers going out to pasture to pasture the sheep. And then here we have these kind of two major moments of what we call providence, God being kind of showing that he's the one writing the story. Joseph's out in the field looking for his brothers. A guy randomly walks by and says, oh, I heard that they're going to Dothan. He meets this guy, tells, he tells him they're going to Dothan. He goes out to them, and then while the brothers are scheming to throw Joseph in the pit, or have already done so, these other guys happen to randomly walk by who are merchants who are going to go sell him off as a slave in, in Egypt. Neither of these things are very good, but they show that ultimately God's plan to get these miraculous dreams realized went through the process of Joseph's pain and having to deal with these unfortunate, very painful circumstances that ultimately landed him in a position where he was with Pharaoh, which we're going to see in the book of Genesis, to be able to help and care for his family, right? That's the mystery of providence that, is it a good thing that his brothers betrayed him and, dis and lied to their dad? No. Is it a good thing that Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt? No. Does God use those things and orient those things and work those things for the good of his people? Yes. I don't understand how that fits all together. Even more so, at the end of the book of, at the, at the whole end of the Bible, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but can we put up um, Revelation? There we go, Revelation 9 through 12. It talks about this new heaven and new earth that's coming down, and here, did you notice, I've, I've underlined it here at the end, very obvious. On the gates of the names of the, of the new heavens, new earth, of the 12 tribes, are written the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Right? So these guys in this story who are like, I mean, crazy, to say the least. They're not the sort of people that you'd want to invite over for casual dinner, right? They are written on the very gates of heaven, which I think at the end of the day 
emphasizes that. I know kind of putting like four things together as we look at this passage and describing what does a loving community of God look like. And the reality is we all kind of live within the kind of the vacillating between one and the other, right? We experience bad things. We want good things. We try to move towards be, being a loving people towards others in the church. We sometimes make, un, you know, unintentionally uh, hurtful decisions towards others, and we vacillate towards these, these dynamics. And we live in kind of the gray zone of all this stuff. At the end of the day, God's providence, as he leads us towards being a new people, and a new heavens and a new earth, can accommodate and work through these difficult circumstances that we unintentionally make that others make towards us. The point is that this call to be a gracious community is based on a gracious God who accommodates and cares for and forgives our own weaknesses and sins so that we can become and become people who are shaped by this Jesus who is gracious towards us. Amen? All right. Let's pray. I'll answer any questions, and then we can continue to worship the Lord together. God, this has been a long passage, a much longer sermon than I intended. I pray that you would help us as we orient towards you to be a people who delight in your goodness towards us. And as we have experienced the failings and failures of other people around us, would we be the type of people who reflect you and are gracious towards those around us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.